This is a podcast from Camden Community Radio. For more information and to volunteer, email info at ccradio.org. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Camden's Hidden Treasures. This is another long episode and it's a deep biographical exploration of a woman who did great things in the borough of Camden. I'm going to be meeting Sylvia who's going to tell me all about this woman and introduce us to a place where you can learn more about her. I'm standing on the corner of Euston Road and Churchway and as you can hear it's quite a busy street. I'm about to meet Sylvia who's going to tell me about Elizabeth Garrett Anderson and so we are meeting in the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital. This is no longer a hospital, it's now the Unison building and it's a brick building with Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital in black letters above the second floor Um, and it says that it was founded in 1866. To get in I'm just going to go into the Unison building through the revolving doors and turn left. Let's go inside. Hi I'm Sylvia and I want to talk about Elizabeth Garrett Anderson who was the first qualified woman doctor and practicing woman doctor in England. We're sitting in the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Gallery, which is because the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital has been taken over by Unison. And thankfully, they've kept this amazing gallery that we're sitting in right now. And the reason I noticed her hospital is I go to the hairdresser on Woburn Walk, which is just behind St Pancras New Church. And there was this amazing Victorian building. I looked up to think, what is it? And it says the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital. I'd heard of her. I think I used to have a book that was about famous women or something when I was a child. But I didn't really know very much about her. And then I just became more and more interested. So she is a woman of firsts. Her achievements are quite remarkable, really. I'll tell you a bit more about the struggle that she went through to get to become the first qualified and practicing woman doctor. But she was also the first dean of a medical school. She was the first woman to set up a hospital for women. There were hospitals for women, but she was the first to set up one that was run entirely by women. She was the first woman on school boards, so newly set up school boards. And in fact, when she was voted on, she had more votes than all the other candidates put together. So she was clearly really popular. She was the first woman mayor. And the key thing for me as well is that she came from, in some ways, an unremarkable family, but her other sisters did remarkable things. So one of her sisters was the woman we now know as Millicent Garrett Fawcett. Millicent Garrett, because Elizabeth Garrett Anderson was a Garrett. They were all Garretts. So Elizabeth married Shelton Anderson, and Millicent married John Fawcett. So Millicent... Garrett Fawcett uh, set up the suffragists and you may well have seen her statues and you know seen seen the tributes to her so so an interesting family and when I was looking more deeply into the history of Elizabeth Garrett Anderson I started thinking about well I was interested in the era she lived in so she was actually born in 1836 
and she died in 1917. And sadly, she died of dementia, and she knew that she was going to have dementia, which I think must be really horrible. Uh, So during that First World War period, she really had no cognizance of what was going on. But up until then, she was an extraordinarily intelligent, articulate, witty, you know, full-on person. But being born in 1936 and being very active in the 1860s, I wondered if she had met Charles Dickens or Octavia Hill or some of the other people who worked in a philanthropic way. And sure enough, she had. And in fact, she worked quite closely with Emmeline Pankhurst as well, even though Emmeline Pankhurst set up the suffragettes that was, if you like, in competition with the suffragists that her sister had set up. Can you just tell me what the difference between suffragettes and gists is? Of course, yes. So Millicent Fawcett that set up the suffragettes believed very strongly that what you needed to do was to persuade the men in the House of Commons that women should have the vote. And she created petitions, she set up long marches, she was always very particular that the women should wear fancy hats to show that they were not radicals, they were, you know, women of substance, even the poorer women, they were well-dressed and well-turned out. She didn't want to be making a fuss or being seen to be um, frivolous in any way. And she felt that if they wrote carefully worded motions that had many, many people of substance signing them, then in the end, men would see the logic and they would just give them the vote. Well, you know, proposal after proposal, petition after petition after petition went forward and absolutely nothing happened. And in particular, Asquith kept saying that he would pass it and then he didn't. So Emmeline Pankhurst set up the suffragettes and their phrase was deeds not words, so actions not just words because they were fed up with the dismissive treatment that women were getting. And that turned into a pretty brutal campaign. But also, again, through my research, I found that when the suffragettes rushed the House of Commons, so they tried to get in and uh, lobby the MPs in the entrance lobby, um, they were pushed away by the police. So they'd have one rush after another rush after another rush. So 100 women would go forward and another 100. The police didn't necessarily arrest them, especially if they were women whose husbands were connected to the government. Um, but they pushed them into the crowds. And basically what they were saying to the crowd was fair game. And those women were sexually assaulted time after time after time, really quite violently. And it was a really horrible thing to do. And it was interesting because um, the whole Victorian ethos at that time was basically angel or princess that needed protecting and putting in a gilded cage or basically prostitute. I mean, you could be a fallen woman who was someone who could have been an angel but didn't quite (laughs) go down the right route way, or you were somebody who just deserved what they got and that seemed to be the attitude to the suffragettes not from everybody but um, from a certain quarter in the political world that then that message got translated into actions through the police so that was a big difference between those two um, organizations Um, and so that was all going on around the same time as elizabeth garrett anderson so that really puts it in context of where the two sort of options women had in people's minds and then you suddenly have a doctor yes exactly well um so elizabeth 
Garrett Anderson and her sister Louisa, she named her daughter Louisa after her older sister, were sent away by their father, um, sent to Blackheath uh, to get educated. And there they met a number of other women, and one of the women that they met was Emily Davis. Emily Davis eventually set up um, a women's college at Oxford. They would go up to Sunderland and meet with her and her friends and talk, but her, you know, her brother and her cousins and so on, and have discussions, and they would send endless writers. The Victorians were inveterate letter writers. There were up to 15 postal deliveries per day. It's extraordinary to think now. It was just like the texting of today, I think. They would write a little note in the morning and expect, like, should we meet this afternoon for tea? And they'd expect a reply that morning, which they would get. So they were letter writers. Sadly, all of Elizabeth Garrett Anderson's letters have been destroyed by Louisa, who wrote the kind of definitive biography. But anyway, in those conversations, Emily turned to Elizabeth and said, well, you should be a doctor, Elizabeth. You know, you're, so, you're very academic and uh, you, could, you could definitely do all the studying to be a doctor. And you, Millie, we rely on you to set up the women's movement. And that's basically what happened um, all the way, you know, <laughs> many years later and down the line, that, that's what happened. And once she'd got that taste for education, she was frustrated that she wasn't stretched more. She wanted to do more in terms of the education. She clearly wasn't focused on getting married. I mean, her older sister, Louisa, did get married quite quickly, when in her 20s, early 20s, whereas Louisa didn't get married until her mid-30s. So she was not fixated on, I'm going to get married and have children. She loved children, and she was a good auntie to Louisa's, uh, to her nieces and nephews. But she seemed to be very clear that she wanted to do other things. And these women around her were giving examples of ways of lives that you could do that. So just going on to the obstacles that she faced, the first one was that she talked to her father and she thought, well, the first thing that I can do is try and get some of these qualifications by attending a hospital. So she got her father to go with her to be interviewed and they used connections of her father's. And the hospital agreed, Middlesex Hospital agreed to take her on as a nurse. So she was a sort of a nurse plus. She was allowed to go into the lectures that the doctors were attending. Um, But she had to do nursing work. So she wasn't very popular. She wasn't popular with the sisters because she wasn't actually a nurse. Um, And she wasn't, certainly wasn't, well, initially she was tolerated by the other doctors. And that was interesting as well. So it looks like there were sort of two sorts of men that went into medicine. Um, A number of, if you like, her sort became her very good friends. In other words, they were interested in medicine for medicine's sake. They were interested in medicine to heal people and help people. They weren't in it as a career for themselves. They, They happened to go into medicine. It could have been anything really, but they would have brought that same seriousness and earnestness, if you like, to to whatever they'd turn their hand to, as indeed I think she would. Um, And then there was another lot who who were kind of in her class and who were recent graduates from Eton School, from the independent private schools, and they were just there for a lark. Uh, And so there was banter between them, there was banter against Elizabeth, they didn't really focus on their studies, they didn't do very well, they didn't answer questions, and gradually, although she started off really, really quiet and sort of like a mouse in the corner, she became more and more sure of herself because she was working in the wards and she was seeing things that were going on and she was interested. She was very rapidly putting two and two together and 
making for. So when they, when they were questioning, when the lecturer was questioning and saying, so, you know, what do you think this might be? Or, or if we put this chemical with that chemical, what would happen? She, um, she actually was able to answer the question, and she did. And um, she would answer, and no, none of the men would be able to answer. And so then she became unpopular. So within a year of being in the uh, Middlesex Hospital, she was devastated to find that there was a letter... Um, well, a letter awaited her, basically, saying that she, she was dismissed, she could no longer continue her studies. And it was because there'd been a letter of complaint from the boys and the young men on her course, wow. saying that she was a distraction and they couldn't have a woman there, they didn't want to be thinking about sex, and they didn't want to be being put wow. off. Um, and actually, it was because they were anxious that she was going to outshine them in the exams. So she was really upset and didn't know what to do. She tried lobbying. Um, her father came down and got angry. Nothing made any difference. But because she had got to know um, this man, uh, I think it was James Planquette, who was um, uh, in the school of apothecary, um, Joshua, Joshua Planskit. Um, he, he, he had qualifications and was on the board of the apothecaries, which was a guild and still is, the Guild of Apothecary. He pointed out to her that she could get a qualification. He thought that she could get um, a qualification to dispense medicine through the apothecaries because the charter talked about people. It didn't talk about men or women. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they applied and the Guild of Apothecaries approached a barrister who looked at all the, the charters and said, no, they would have to accept her. And she started down the route way. She had passed two exams, I think, in anatomy and biology. So they were kind of, they stood good. Um, But then she had to pass all these other exams and have two clinical periods. So she ended up going to St Andrews, Edinburgh, uh, London Hospital School, all over really, trying to get these different, and succeeding in getting all the different pieces of the jigsaw. But none of them would allow her to, so long as she said, I'm not asking you to pass me in my MD, your Doctor of Medicine, then they would have her. Not all of them, but there were one or two who would be prepared to have her. So in the end, she got her qualification through the apothecaries. They immediately changed the charter to stop other women coming through and doing the same thing, so nobody else could go through that routeway. Um, so they changed it from saying people to yes. just saying men? Yes, yes. And, um, and she used that barrister to help her when she had difficulties you know, throughout her life. He became her friend, really. So how did she ever become a qualified doctor, you may ask? By going to the University of Sorbonne in Paris. So basically, she read and heard about the fact that um, <coughs> the, the dean of uh, <coughs> medicine in, in the Sorbonne had decided that he was going to uh, um, allow women to qualify and so she applied got accepted and of course had to do all her her presentations in French which she did and it relied a lot on vivas so you you got given um, I don't know a a bit of skeleton and asked you know what was wrong with this or a photograph of I imagine a body or an actual bit of you know a person perhaps I don't know Um, but you basically had to say what was wrong with it and what you would do about it because she'd already got all of the actual um, qualifications, the academic qualifications. So it was this kind of viva that she had to go through. And every time she went through one, whether it was for obstetrics or surgery or whatever, every single time she'd go in a little bit worried and they would always say, this was the most outstanding you know, one that we'd 
had the you know most outstanding candidate you know she, she definitely needs to go through so she didn't just get it you know she was better than the rest I mean it's probably to do with the fact that she had all of that other experience because by this time she was running her own hospital so on the back of the yeah. the Creek qualification she then set up a dispensary near Paddington in St Mary's and she was treating the poor in the Lisson Grove area it was only a couple of rooms and then it expanded and then she built this hospital that we're sitting in now so um, the other obstacles I suppose were very much to do with people's attitudes and uh, she was trying very much to be part of the BMA, the British Medical Association. And she did get in, it was a sort of an accident, because she had got that qualification from the Apothecary Guild, um, and they didn't notice that she was a woman when she first put in her application. She became a member of the BMA. As soon as they realised, as soon as they saw her and they realised, they were horrified, and they wouldn't allow anybody else in. So again, no other women were allowed into the BMA for, for many years. But she was in, in the 1870s. But they wouldn't let her speak at first. So, and she wasn't allowed to um, study or research with them. So there was a room that they could go to. So she set us up. In fact, this gallery, I think, is, is it, is where the study room was set up so that women who had qualified as doctors and who couldn't get into the BMA could come and uh, look at research that had been carried out. And all of them, um, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, uh, Louisa Aldrich Blake, and um, Sophia Hicks Blake, they were all interested in research and they, they regarded it as a major achievement if they could get an article into the Lancet um, based on their research, which they did, they all did. So um, it was, again, it was an act of cruelty really to try to, well they actually not try, to succeed in blocking women's access to research when all they wanted was to improve medicine and, and understand a little bit more about what might help to Im improve medicine. There was one bit that I came across in my uh, reading where they said something about, um, of course, women, women shouldn't be involved in gynaecology. I mean, what do women know about women's bodies? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just an incredibly, you know, presumptive, assumptive... Uh, well, set of assumptions that gynaecology, of all things, was, was man's business. And, and very often, um, you know, they, they had no proper understanding of the pain that was involved in, uh, in that whole area, literally that area, but that area of medicine and that area of the body, because it wasn't theirs, you know, they'd never experienced it. Uh, whereas, obviously, the, the women doctors did. And, and again, they, were, they had something unique to contribute to the area of research and they were being denied that opportunity. So it was operating on, on operating, yeah, operating on many <laughs> levels. I don't think she ever stopped, there's no evidence that she actually stopped and thought, oh I'll be the first woman to do this or even I'll do something that only men have done. I think she came across these obstacles and then realised that it was misogynistic if you like you know that it was very much about well you can't do this because you're a woman so she didn't seem to have that thought herself um, so I suppose the other thing that I just want to come on to is, is the legacy the legacy of the wing <laughs> that's still there in the Middlesex hospital so um, over time the women's hospital here joined with a, another women's hospital in Fitzrovia and those two then became part of the Middlesex hospital that's now um, it's the LSU in London's London University.
yeah. School of Medicine. I think it's London School of Medicine. It's the overarching London school that incorporates the Middlesex, because the Middlesex itself is closed. So she's got a wing, the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson wing, which specialises in women's medicine, including women's cancer, over in, in the new modern hospital. So that's kind of a 2019 legacy, direct line legacy from that 1870 beginnings. And that, that's just about a five-minute walk away, so you exactly. can go and see, and it in says Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Wing. That's right, and there's a fantastic mosaic, as you go in, of her face, made up of the names of millions and millions of nurses and doctors who've been influenced by her. Um, and I guess um, the other legacy, in a way, is her, is her daughter, Louisa, um, who also became a doctor and who set up the military hospital do, during the First World War. Um, that is uh, just um, in Covent Garden, close to Seven Dials on Endell Street. And um, it was called the Endell Street Military Hospital. It was actually in the building of the, of the old workhouse. And that building was there right through to about the 1970s, but it's now a housing estate that Camden have very helpfully put up for, for um, people to be able to get a house and, and so on. Um, but that military hospital you know, treated something like 2,000 men over... Was it, more many many thousands of men over that four-year period um but she too found that she wasn't really accepted in the world of medicine she was expected to go back to the women and children's hospital that she had set up with her companion flora murray there was no place yet in 1920s britain for women to um mix and function on an equal basis in the medical world. But I think what she gave to Louisa was the, the strength and the vision that women can do these things and that this is, this is what we do, really. Um, the other interesting thing, I don't know if this is a legacy or not, but um, the interesting thing for me is that she only had... Well, she actually had three children, but she only had three children. The middle one, uh, Margaret, died. So she had Louisa and Alan, who survived. Margaret died at age two. And she carried on doctoring through all that tragedy of losing her little girl. Um, but I, I do believe that, I mean, again, I haven't seen anything that actually says this, but given that she knew and understood about gynecological issues and, obviously, contraception, I do think that she made a conscious decision to have just two children. And that, again, is a bit of a model for other women, that you can have a career and you can have children. And you don't have to have lots of children. You can have just two. And actually, you know, your life is busy enough, in fact, doing all these other things. So there was that as a legacy. And then with the Women's School of Medicine, the, the training that she set up and the battles that she fought to get permission for the women to become qualified as doctors. It was only when the Royal Free joined forces with their Women's School of Medicine that they got the actual MD training sorted out. So it was about 10 years after they'd established the hospital. They'd passed all the exams, but they didn't have the MD. And she knew that in order for it to be sustainable over time, to attract women to come in and pay for their training, then they would need to have the MD. So she worked away at that, and again, that's a sort of legacy that we've got today, where we've got over 50% of doctors being trained are women. And then, as well, there's the impact, I think, on women's lives. So, you know, the poor women's lives, the, the number of women that she must have saved from either dying or certainly having traumatic 
uh, childbirth or their children dying because the, the infant mortality rates were really, really high. I mean, at least 50% of children were dying in the poorer areas, a much higher percent. Um, but, but regardless of social class, you have a sort of 50-50 chance of your child surviving. And a lot of that was to do with the complications at childbirth. Obviously, the higher rates of infant mortality were then to do with not having enough to eat or not having the right uh, amounts of vitamins and so on if you were poor. But that kind of impact we can't we can never quantify i think but it must be the case that in this area where the hospital was uh, many many more poorer people would have lived and survived and had you know better quality lives than they would have done if she hadn't been here mm. and and then of course the impact that she had just on the other people in the hospital the other women in the hospital and their husbands and sons and daughters so the reach in that mm. sense i think was enormous that sense of women can, women can do these things. And I think that was um, obviously uh, supported by the women's activity in the First World War. So the fact that the First World War kind of came almost um, on the back of the work that she'd already started um, helped to kind of um, solidify and, and cement that idea that women can do all sorts of things, including um, cleaning and driving trains and buses and trams and so on, which they've never done before. But but I think she started, you know, perhaps some of those women that were working in the hospital, their sisters or children, may have been the ones that ended up going forward to work on the trams because they'd seen their mums working in the hospital and so on. You know, you, you can't kind of um, underestimate, I think, the impact of... of one woman's life on on a number of other women who were coming through. Yeah. She sounds like a really incredible woman and it's so nice to have her history remembered in this place and by people like you. She was would have been in this area. She would have been here in this hospital. This is where her you know where she ruled the roost if you like. I mean I feel with with these women that you can touch them. Mm. You know, it just feels really close. And sometimes I feel well, it is only 70 years, where are we, 29, it's 100 years, it's only 100 years since we got the vote, and it's only 100 years since, you know, the first woman lawyer came through, it's only, well, 150 years, 70, 140 years since, she, 50 years since she first got her qualification. And then at other times I think, it is 100 years, and we're still here, it is 150 years. Yeah. And the other thing I think is interesting is that the way that medicine has progressed. I was thinking about this the other day. I think one of the reasons that um, there are 50% or even 60% women um, who qualify, never mind apply, um, as doctors now is because it's an NHS job. So it's not actually, you're never going to make a, you know, a mint on the back of an NHS job. You'll make a lot of money if you do NHS and consultancy, but you're making more if you become 100% consultant. And these days that's unusual for a doctor to be 100% private some do but you know later on in their lives but they usually don't they start off I think having some sense of paying back their training um, by working for some of the time in the hospital but it's it's not the same as banking or engineering or um, high high powered science jobs which are usually funded by private money um, private industry and that's still the area where women are struggling to get in so I think there's something around the soft 
um, the soft, what are regarded now as the softer areas because they are publicly funded, so medicine and education, universities and so on, uh, versus the harder areas, which is tech and engineering and banking and stock brokering. Um, because it was at 1970 before women were allowed to be stockbrokers. I mean, it's correct. Well, yeah, to, to actually go in the stock exchange. They could be stockbrokers, but they couldn't go in the stock exchange until the 1970s. So that, I mean, yeah. that's so recent. It's so recent. It's, it's unreal. Yeah. Colour television was in operation before women were allowed to go into the stock exchange. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It, it really does make you kind of speechless in a sense. That, yeah. Yeah. So we're sitting in the very hospital that she created, and it was pretty state-of-the-art at the time. It's a really lovely little gallery. Um, it's a series of both photographs and interactive video with some prompts and some artefacts to the um, ceramic plaques that were put above the particular beds that have been uh, sponsored by individuals. There's one there from James George Skellett Anderson, who was um, her husband. It's really worth taking the time to go around in a clockwise fashion and look at the photographs um, that they've laid out because it does tell the chronological story of her life. And I, I, personally, I find it hard to take it all in, so it's worth coming back a couple of times to just kind of browse through it and re-remember where you got to because there's a lot of information about it. And yeah, there's, some, there's a couple of really good biographies. One's written by Louisa herself. Uh, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson's daughter, Louisa, wrote an excellent biography on her. So there's more, more you can find out about her. So coming back out onto Euston Road and looking up at the, this hospital, I feel like I have a new appreciation for Elizabeth Garrett Anderson and what what she did in this building um, and I'm gonna notice it now every time I walk past and hopefully you will too. So if you're inspired by listening to Sylvia's introduction to Elizabeth Garrett Anderson and you'd like to visit the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Gallery, it's located in the Unison Centre, 130 Euston Road. The nearest station would be Euston Station, but it's also close to King's Cross. And the gallery is open to the public between 9am and 6pm on Wednesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, as well as from 9 till 4 on the third Saturday of each month. And it's free to go in and look around. You can take as long as you like. It's also quite a nice restful place to sit down if you're feeling stressed out on Euston Road. But yes, I hope you visit or read more about Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. And to find out about more hidden treasures in Camden, you can listen to the rest of the episodes in this series and the few that will be coming out soon. And if you'd like to go on a tour with Sylvia or any of the other Camden guides, you can go to www.camdenguides.com and they're all listed there as well as the particular areas or walks that they are expert in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Camden's Hidden Treasures. You are listening to a podcast from Camden Community Radio. www.ccradio.org.